Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is David Hempton, and as uh, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our lecture this evening, and especially to welcome Professor Brad Gregory and his wife, Kerry, from, uh, who traveled out from South Bend this morning. So uh, thank you for joining us. A few um, uh, quick housekeeping items up front. Um, uh, uh, please turn off your phones and communication devices, just to, that would be helpful. And um, the lecture is being webcast as well as videotaped, uh, so I'd like to welcome our viewers on the computer, wherever they may be. Uh, so welcome, everyone. Last night, we had the festive opening of the exhibit. Ah, you see, this is a, this is a, this, this is a good strategy. Um, last night, we had the festive opening of the exhibit commemorating the 500th anniversary of the um, Reformation in our Andover Harvard Library that was curated uh, by our librarians with much effort, expertise, and love. Uh, please go see it if you get a chance. Um, perhaps pay particular attention to um, a little pamphlet produced in England in, the, um, in I think 1646 called A List of the Twenty Heresies of the Early Modern World, um, which one wag thought was a very good description of the Harvard Divinity School. <laughs> um, Having our distinguished speaker, Brad Gregory, here with us tonight to speak about the unintended reformation and the secularization of the Western world is an important next step in our series of events this fall, marking the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the reformation. We will have further events throughout the coming weeks. We're celebrating this important half millennium in religious history with classes, lectures, a workshop, and further exhibitions in the library. I'm also told that there are plans for more hands-on workshops, like make your own pamphlet, or <laughs> nail your own 95 theses to the door. Um, just stay away from my door. Um, my colleague, Professor uh, Kevin Manigan, when Professor of Ecclesiastical History, conceived of this event earlier this year and was instrumental in bringing our speaker, Professor Gregory, uh, to us. Um, yeah, professor Gregory is a Dorothy G. Griffin Professor of Early Modern European History at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, so thank you, uh, Kevin, and thank you, Brad, for, for bringing this off. As many of you know already, uh, Professor Gregory specializes in the religious and intellectual history of early modern Europe, and, and of course, reaching far beyond those of you who have uh, read his work, um, and is interested in method and theory and the understanding of history and religion in really big picture ways. He's written several magisterial prize-winning books, including Salvation at Stake, the Unintended Reformation, uh, How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society, this book, uh, published in uh, 2012, which is also the title of tonight's lecture. And most recently, he's written Rebel in the Ranks, a study of Martin Luther in the 500th year of the beginning of the Reformation, which, is, which will be released to the public in just a few days, I think. Um, so my office has been working with the Coop and the Harvard Bookstore, and both stores will have the books in stock um, uh, next week, so uh, please go and help his royalty account. Um, having had my own understanding of the modern West enlarged considerably by, reaching, by reading The Unintended Reformation, this book, um, several years ago, I know we're in for a special treat this, this evening. Its central argument that the uh, ideological and institutional shifts that occurred five or more centuries ago remain necessary to an explanation of why the Western world today is as it is, is both tremendously stimulating and appropriately controversial. It's a great read, so, uh, um, 
So without further ado, please uh, join me now in welcoming our colleague Kevin Madigan to the podium who will offer a more expert introduction of our distinguished visitor. Kevin, thank you very much. Thank you so much, David. I want to, uh, first of all, uh, give David Hall uh, the credit for actually conceiving of this event, and uh, I joined in after he uh, thought of it. Uh, so thank you very much, David. Um, I'm going to uh, introduce our distinguished guest uh, very briefly. This is because, uh, uh, first, uh, as a distinguished scholar, he needs a uh, little introduction, and second, so that we can maximize his time uh, behind uh, the podium. Uh, as David mentioned, uh, Professor Gregory is a professor of European history at the University of Notre Dame, and there he also serves as the university's director of the Institute for Advanced Studies. Brad earned, uh, before going on uh, to do his PhD work, two degrees in philosophy uh, from the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium, and he took his PhD uh, at Princeton and then spent some years here at Harvard as a junior fellow in the Society of Fellows. He began his teaching career at Stanford, uh, where he was awarded early tenure uh, before moving on to Notre Dame. Gregory was also the recipient while at Stanford with two teaching awards and has received three more uh, since at Notre Dame. As uh, uh, our dean emphasized, uh, Gregory specializes in the history of Christianity uh, in the early modern era and the long-term influence of uh, that era. He's also interested in method and theory uh, in the understanding uh, of history and religion. This is an interest, I would say, that's reflected in very stimulating ways in his major uh, writings, uh, uh, the second of which uh, Professor Hampton, uh, The Unintended Reformation, uh, uh, already mentioned. Brad's first, or Professor Gregory's first book, uh, Salvation at Stake, Christian Martyrdom in Early Modern Europe, received no fewer than six book awards. In 2005, he was named the inaugural winner of the first annual Hyatt Prize in the Humanities, and this is an award given by the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture to outstanding mid-career humanities scholars in the United States, and carried a substantial monetary award, which I'm sure uh, uh, Brad did not really uh, care about, but simply the <laughs> scholarly recognition uh, and the amount of which I will not mention here in public. Uh, um, uh, David has mentioned that uh, in addition to the Unintended Reformation, Brad has a biography of Martin Luther, uh, which has just been published. A, a very popular speaker, Professor Gregory has given invited lectures at many of the most prestigious universities in North America, as well as in the UK, uh, Europe, Israel, uh, Australia, and Asia. We're very fortunate to have him this uh, evening, uh, as his dance card is quite full this year, on the 500th uh, year of uh, the, Re the Reformation. And so please join me in welcoming Professor Gregory back to Harvard as he addresses us on the topic, the Reformation era, and the unintended secularization of Western society. Brett. Thanks very much, uh, Kevin, for that uh, gracious introduction. Dean Hempton as well, I appreciate it. David for, I guess, being the instigator behind this um, uh, initial uh, uh, move to, to have me come here. And I, I wanna say just uh, by way of introduction, 
also that um, you're catching me on the first of my 17 travel trips this, this semester while I am still on full-time directing an institute, teaching a graduate seminar. So uh, I think I'll probably be freshest now. And uh, I don't quite know what it's going to be like by the time I get to the first week of December uh, at the end of the line. But, you know, hopefully I'll survive it. Um, it's uh, a pleasure really to be here. I want to thank the members also of the HDS staff who've been absolutely fantastic in, in facilitating uh, uh, the preparations for my visit. And uh, to thanks to all of you as well for taking the time to come uh, when I was here at, at Harvard for two years in the mid-90s. I know well the uh, extraordinary uh, range of offerings that one can choose from and uh, that you chose to come here. Uh, I think, well, I, I'm very pleased about it. I don't know what it suggests about your judgment or about what the offerings uh, on hand are as an alternative, but it's always a pleasure to come back. Thank you for being here. Um, as I'm sure all of you are aware by now, in fact, you're probably sick of hearing about it perhaps by now, 2017 is the quincentenary year of what is regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, the writing and perhaps also the posting of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Major historical commemorations such as this one cast a temporary spotlight on historians who otherwise labor away in their respective fields without much fanfare or attention, providing an opportunity to step back, take stock, and ask questions about the long-term implications and influences, legacies, and significance of the historical phenomena in question. In my case, I inadvertently got a head start. Reference to the book you just heard about a moment ago, in 2012, Belknap uh, Press published uh, my book, The Unintended Reformation, which is about the ways in which contemporary Europe and North America can't be understood adequately apart from the Reformation era, circa 1520 to 1650. I honestly did not expect the book to garner over 100 reviews to initiate conversations that have continued over the last five years and certainly not to become part of this year's quincentennial discussions about the Reformation's abiding significance. In addition, as you also have heard, I've written a differently structured, shorter book for a broader audience, which is just out from Harper One, sort of just out. There are advanced copies floating around, but next week you'll all be able to rush down to the Coop and other bookstores in, in the neighborhood and buy, just stock up for Christmas gifts for your friends and colleagues. Um, the, the title of that book is Rebel in the Ranks, Martin Luther, the Reformation, and the Conflicts that Continue to Shape Our World. And just truth in advertising, only the first of the four chapters of that book is actually about Luther. Um, so it's not, it's not exclusively a, a study about him. In fact, mostly is not about him, but one has to start with him. What I want to do this afternoon is to pre present something of the thrust of the main argument from both of these books, especially the Unintended Reformation, and, and admittedly in a highly compressed form. I will start with saying a little bit um, about methodology, conception of historical change, as well as my understanding of the relationship between the past and the present that underlies both books. In terms of both method and scope, the unintended reformation will interest more than reformation historians or scholars of the history of Christianity. Its main objective is straightforward, albeit ambitious, to explain the institutional and ideological realities in contemporary North America, and particularly those areas of Europe that in the Middle Ages were part of Latin Christendom. Although I'm a historian of early modern Europe, I take the present in this book as my point of departure in a study that is as much about the present as it is about the past which is why the book fits well with the quincentenary reflections on the Reformation's abiding importance. Explaining how the past became the present is one thing that historians are expected to do, 
but it might seem an odd endeavor for a historian chiefly concerned with the very dead of the 16th and the 17th centuries. What have they to do with the political realities, global capitalism, moral debates, intellectual concerns, and social problems of the early 21st century? Aren't we supposed to exercise some self-restraint and stay in our fields? So I will start by saying something about my approach and method in the book. Fields as historians usually define them, are trained in them, and use them to tackle their division of labor are well suited to try to answer many questions about the past. But I've come to think that they paradoxically inhibit attempts to answer the basic historical question of how the world as we know it today came to be as it is. There seem to me to be two fundamental reasons for this. First, despite the recent vogue for global and transnational history, most professional historians tend to distinguish fields according to chronological period, nation or region, and type of history. So that historians are usually trained and do their work as, say, social historians of medieval England, or cultural historians of the antebellum American South, or political historians of colonial West Africa. This is obviously a practical necessity, given the complexity of the past and the unmanageable superabundance of surviving sources. One can't read and master everything, or indeed even very much. But this doesn't alter the facts that many historical realities transcend national boundaries and that human life is always lived as an interconnected whole, not in separate compartments called politics or culture or economics. Therefore, no serious account of how the past has produced the present could rely on culture or capitalism, ideas or institutions, social relationships, or science. Anyone who wants to explain how the past became the present has to try to incorporate multiple domains because of their combined explanatory power, itself a corollary of their interrelated historical influence. The trick, of course, is how to do this in an intellectually responsible and persuasive way. This applies also to historians of Christianity, insofar as religion, whatever the tradition we're talking about, is always lived in concrete contexts by flesh and blood human beings in social and political relationships. The Unintended Reformation addresses this challenge through six linked narratives, each of which opens with a description of something important about the present and then offers an explanation of how it came about, starting with the late Middle Ages and emphasizing the transformative character of the Reformation era. I begin with the institutionalized worldview of late medieval Christianity in my book, looking back where necessary to earlier medieval centuries and indeed to the ancient world in a manner that's consistent with my genealogical methodology. Because Western Europe on the eve of the Reformation is I think how far back in time we need to go in order to explain how and why the world in which we're living today came to be as it is. And just to preempt a question I often get, we can start earlier, if we want to, start earlier than the 14th and 15th centuries, but we're still going to have to come through that transformative historical bottleneck of what happened in early modern Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. As a many-layered, locally diverse, institutionalized worldview built up unsystematically over centuries, late medieval Christianity sought to shape all of life's domains and it influenced them all for good or ill. Hence, the Reformation's challenge to and rejection of the authority of the Roman Church was bound to affect all of those domains, a fact reflected in the range of issues that I analyze in my book's six chapters. Simply to indicate these very briefly, and I know this is 
painfully redundant for those of you who might have read the book, but don't worry, it will pass quickly, I promise. Chapter one, Excluding God, explores the relationship among religion, science, and metaphysics, and how deadlocked theological controversies contributed to modern philosophical discourses about God in relationship to the emergence of modern science. The second chapter, Relativizing Doctrines, concentrates on the bases for truth claims about human values and meaning, beginning with the Reformation. The two most important novel bases being the Bible alone in Protestantism and reason alone in modern philosophy since Descartes. Chapter three is called Controlling the Churches. It focuses on the institutional locus of the public exercise of power and the emergence of monopolistic state sovereignty. The next chapter is Subjectivizing Morality, which analyzes the transformation of moral discourse and moral behavior from a substantive ethics of the good to a formal ethics of individual rights in relationship to political institutions. Chapter five, manufacturing the good's life, that's the only clever phrase in the whole book almost, <laughs> treats the relationship among human desires, acquisitiveness, consumption, and capitalism. And the final chapter, secularizing knowledge, addresses the relationship between higher education and assumptions about the making and transmission of knowledge. Despite mischaracterizations by some reviewers, the unintended reformation is not just an intellectual history. Not that I'm sensitive to this point at all. Only someone who ignored chapters three to five entirely, for example, could think that. In order to explain how the world we're living in today came to be as it is, we need not only to include religion, science, philosophy, institutions, power, morality, economics, and higher education, but we also have to try to understand their relationships to one another. The respective domains of life addressed in each chapter are analytically distinguished with the aim of fostering increased insight, not because each was somehow lived in isolation from the others. So the book is structured as six long-term narratives that are simultaneously distinguished from and related to one another in what is intended as a single explanatory account. Another point I repeat several times in the book, which has been unfortunately lost on some reviewers. I know, it's just, any, what are you gonna do? Anybody who's ever written a complex book has had this experience, I'm sure. The fact that each chapter starts in the late Middle Ages and runs through the Reformation era to the present is related to the second reason, why it seems to me historical fields as ordinarily constituted fall short in explaining the character of the present. In a word, even, even though changes that occurred in the distant past remain influential today, they tend not to be recognized as such because of the chronological division of labor among historians and the conception of change over time that it presupposes. Most historians, and indeed most people in general, it seems, regardless of the period studied, are taught to believe that accounting for the present is a task that falls to modernists. Historians of the pre-modern past specialize in reconstructing its otherness, an alterity confirmed in proportion to their immersion in their sources. Modernists share this aspiration in their respective ways, but they are also expected to explain how that otherness became the familiar present. This expectation seems to have increased in recent years with the unprecedented pace of change driven by technology and globalization. In Harvard's own Daniel Lord Smale's words, quote, the flattening of history or the telescoping of historical time has been accompanied by a sense that history has begun to withdraw from an engagement with the deeper past as history has become confused with modernity. 
The underlying assumption is that the distant past was so dramatically different that knowledge of it is essentially dispensable for those whose objective is to understand an ever more transformed present. The same assumption, incidentally, tends to characterize much scholarship in most of the social sciences, certainly most sociology, psychology, economics, and political science. So Reformation historians, for example, obviously need to understand the late medieval period in order to comprehend the 16th century historical realities in which they are primarily interested. But 20th century American historians ostensibly do not. This seems to make sense, even aside from the accelerating rate of change in recent decades, given the radical transformation wrought by the shift from a primarily agrarian to an industrial economy in Western Europe and North America in the past two centuries, together with the solidification of powerful bureaucratic states and a demographic trend away from rural and toward urban societies. The dramatic changes wrought by the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, industrialization, and modern capitalism decisively separate us from them. Hence the seeming justification for typical schemes of historical periodization, reflected also in the ordinary division of labor among the co-authors of Western and World Civ textbooks. Medievalists handing the baton to the early modernists, the early modernists deliver it to the modernists for the anchor leg of the relay. The pre-modern European past of the late Middle Ages and the Reformation era is assumed to have been left behind, explanatorily important to what immediately followed it, but not to the present. Now, I think this stadial, supersessionist conception of historical change is mistaken in crucial ways. Both the unintended reformation and rebel in the ranks are directed against it. I do not dispute the obvious enormity of the transition from pre-modern to modern in the ways that I've just discussed. Nor do I question the importance of historicism as a necessary safeguard against anachronism. But it does not follow that we can therefore dispense with the distant past if we want to understand the present. I reject the idea and the scholarly practice that we should regard the pre-modern past as over and done with, a vanished epoch against which modern institutions and ideologies define themselves and which they have transcended and left behind. My starting point is intended to be flatly descriptive, indeed really quite banal. Human life in North America and Europe in the early 21st century is characterized by an enormous range of divergent and incompatible truth claims whether they're explicit or implicit, about values, meaning, morality, purpose, and priorities. And these different claims tend to be related to how people seek to live, at least insofar as their economic means and political circumstances permit. Different people claim different things are true. They care about different things, pursue divergent aspirations, regard discrepant activities as meaningful, and so forth many of which conflict with and indeed are antithetical to one another, and some of which are politically and socially divisive, as we have been experiencing dramatically in the United States on a daily basis. Insofar as the past has made the present what it is, any adequate historical explanation must be able to account for all these rival truth claims, regardless of their content or how they and the behaviors to which they are related are maintained or relinquished, hybridized or adapted. My aim then, in a certain sense, is to do explanatory justice to the full range of the first person plural, we, when it's used as a collective and inclusive designation for contemporary Europeans and North Americans. 
What needs to be explained is the content of we with respect to contemporary ideological realities. As I see it, one of the most common problems here is the tendency to generalize in a way that fails to account for the empirical diversity of what human beings actually believe and care about and how they live and act. Charles Taylor, for example, in characterizing contemporary Westerners in his justly celebrated 2007 book, A Secular Age, has written that, quote, we all shunt between two stances in our views about religious belief and unbelief. I don't think so. Many millions of people, from divergently devout religious believers to militant despisers of religion, seem not to be doing much shunting. On the contrary, they seem confidently convinced that their respective rival views are correct, not sharing in the self-conscious ambivalence or the self-relativizing skepticism that indeed characterizes other contemporaries. Nor, for example, will the we in the subtitle of the collection edited by George Levine suffice. The book's title, The Joy of Secularism, 11 Essays for How We Live Now, especially in the United States, where most citizens are religious believers of one sort or another. Who are we? If the referent is empirically inclusive, the pronoun encompasses neo-Nazi racists and Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity, Angela Merkel and Lady Gaga, Old Order Amish and New Atheists, Hugh Hefner and Pope Francis, not because these are somehow typical male and female contemporary Westerners, but because all of them, like all of us, are equally the present product of historical processes. So any adequate historical explanation of the present has to be able to account for all of them and for the full range of different worldviews, values, and commitments that people in fact hold, whether explicitly or implicitly, coherently or confusedly. It must also be able to account for the ways in which they hold their views and for the full spectrum of ways in which people modify and adapt them. One of my central arguments is that the ideological pluralism of the Western world today is an extraordinarily complex product of rejections, retentions, and transformations of medieval Western Christianity in which the Reformation era constitutes the fundamental watershed. Doctrinally, socially, and politically divisive disagreements about what is true, how one ought to live, what matters most in life, and so forth, emerged within a Christian context and characterized the Reformation era from its outset in the early 1520s, and these disagreements have never gone away. Instead, they have been transformed, modified, expanded in content and character, even as efforts have been made to contain and to manage their unintended and their unprecedentedly enormous effects. Late medieval Christianity was, for better or worse, an institutionalized worldview, not something separate and separable from the rest of life called religion. Or, as I put it in Rebel in the Ranks, it was religion as more than religion. Hence, the unwanted persistence of early modern Christian pluralism precipitated subsequent ideological and institutional changes which, taken together, explain the vastly greater pluralism of North America and Europe in the early 21st century. Today, this ideological heterogeneity is contained and incubated within the hegemonic institutions, most importantly, liberal sovereign nation states and the market's symbiosis of capitalism and consumerism, that protect a formal ethics of individual rights originally pioneered in the United States. Now, with national variations, it characterizes every country in the Western world. 
Virtually universal participation in an acquisitive consumerist ethos provides the most important cultural glue, which functions to hold together the ideological pluralism. Although now, the effectiveness of wealth, I'm sorry, the effectiveness of its adhesiveness is increasingly being strained by the dramatic inequalities of wealth generated by neoliberal capitalism since the 1980s, inequalities now constantly and instantaneously visible in images online. Still, judging from the consumer behavior reflected in statistics for spending and economic growth, it is correctly assumed by corporate executives, by marketing specialists, and by economists that the vast majority of people want more and better stuff, whatever their beliefs or income otherwise, whether they shop at Bloomingdale's or Walmart. Contemporary Western pluralism includes an enormous range of rival religious as well as secular truth claims that offer answers to questions about matters of meaning and morality, purpose and priorities, what I call life questions. Although some scholars in recent decades seem surprised that religion is back, what's more surprising, at least to me, is that it was ever thought to have departed, aside from those who actually believed that classic theories of modernization and secularization were somehow prophecies destined to come true. Religion is part of contemporary Western pluralism, not only as a social fact, which is indisputable, but also in the form of intellectually viable religious worldviews, compatible with all the findings of the natural sciences, which is often disputed, although typically without sufficient attention to the intellectual issues involved. Because intellectually sophisticated theology, philosophy of religion, and historicist but non-skeptical biblical scholarship are part of contemporary Western pluralism, any adequate account of the present must also include them. They are part of our world today, despite having been banished from virtually all research universities, or at least relegated to divinity schools. In the Unintended Reformation, I show how mistaken views about the alleged incompatibility between revealed religion and science emerged historically. I also show how these wrongheaded ideas are reinforced through the institutionalized exclusion of all substantive religious claims from secularized higher education. Both phenomena are part of the unintended long-term effects of the unresolved doctrinal disagreements of the Reformation era. By the 17th century, these standoffs had left reason as the only supra-confessional means of approaching the relationship between God and the natural world at the headwaters of modern philosophy. Meanwhile, unintended doctrinal pluralism problematized the epistemological status of Christian truth claims and paved the way for their exclusion as unverifiable opinions from any place in universities that were dominated by the end of the 19th century by the epistemological and the metaphysical assumptions of the newly preeminent natural sciences. The status of the sciences was secured in part through the ways in which entrepreneurs within national estates applied their findings via technology in agricultural innovations and industrial manufacturing, which produced the material things consumers wanted. It's a dynamic going stronger than ever today. I've said something about what I'm up to methodologically and why, out of the desire to understand the world we're living in today, I've included in an explanatorily substantive way a longer term historical past than most of us tend to assume is necessary. In very brief compass, very brief, I'll now try to give some sense of how the Reformation era continues to influence all of our lives, whether or not we're aware of it. That's always a good spot for a break. 
That a religious revolution would lead to the secularization of society is obviously a paradox. It's not what any of the leaders of the Reformation sought in the 16th century. The first thing to be said then is that the Reformation's influence on the eventual secularization of society was complex, anything but immediate, mostly indirect, and very much unintended. The influence was not, in my view, primarily Weberian. I regard as mistaken the fairly common position, of which there are many variations, that a once enchanted and supposedly magical medieval worldview was disenchanted and secularized through something either inherent in Protestantism or intrinsic to modern science. This is one form of a supersessionist narrative of modern Western history that doesn't do justice to the present because, among other things, it ignores the continuing intellectual viability of religious worldviews throughout the modern era. The Reformation, per se, did not disenchant the world or secularize society. 16th century Protestant writings are filled with copious references to divine providence and presence. Those who spurned the Roman church in the 16th century sought to address its longstanding problems in order to make all of human life more genuinely Christian than they thought it had been. This, has been, this had been a pressing concern among many reformers within the Roman church throughout the later Middle Ages, from, say, Catherine of Siena in the 1370s through Erasmus in the 15-teens. What happened instead, as a result of Protestant reformers' actions, but very much against their intentions, was a long-term, variegated, complicated process of the disembedding of Christianity from the rest of life. This disembedding is central to what I mean by secularization. A corollary of this process was the emergence of the familiar conception of religion as something separate and separable, distinct and distinguishable from shared public life, because it came to be regarded essentially as a matter of individuals' interior beliefs plus their preferred worship and devotional practices. There were two principal reasons for this process of disembedding. First, the turn to scripture alone, to the Bible as a supposedly self-sufficient and perspicuous basis for Christian faith and life, independent in principle of ecclesiastical tradition and the Roman church's authority, yielded nothing close to a consensus about the meaning and the implication of God's word. Had it done so, the history of the Reformation and our Protestantism since the 16th century would have looked radically different. Instead, from the very beginning of the German Reformation in the early 1520s, the turn to scripture produced an open-ended and changeable range of rival truth claims about what God's word meant. As 16th century Christians were well aware, but some ecumenically minded Christians today seem to have forgotten, the principle of non-contradiction meant that it was impossible for all of these conflicting truth claims actually to be true wherever they contradicted one another. This meant not all of them could belong to knowledge. Eventually, after a long early modern interlude in which theology was politically privileged and insulated in the universities and academies of rival Catholic and Protestant confessional regimes, this fact would contribute to the secularization of knowledge and the exclusion of theology from universities. Religious studies departments would eventually be installed in the place of theology faculties with religion studied on the basis of the same naturalist, methodological, and metaphysical assumptions that govern the pursuit of modern knowledge in all academic disciplines. In the Reformation era, disagreements about Christian truth among rival antagonists produce endless and profuse doctrinal controversy. Anyone familiar with the sources of the period knows this, provided that the sources are studied comparatively and cross-confessionally. 
You won't see it if you only stick to one tradition. Attempts to overcome the unsought pluralism through a given interpretation of the biblical text, appeals to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, new revelation from God, or the use of discursive reason, in fact only augmented the pluralism that they sought to overcome, providing more things about which Christians could and did disagree. Unintended early modern Protestant doctrinal disagreement is thus a critically important distant source for contemporary Western pluralism because these kinds of disagreements about answers to life questions have never gone away. We simply experience them now in different forms and with many more rival secular as well as religious truth claims within a liberal institutional context that permits and protects them all rather than privileging one or prohibiting any, so long as their respective protagonists are politically obedient. The Reformation sought a return to the pure word of God, uncluttered by human traditions, pagan philosophies, and clerical manipulations. It resulted instead in an open-ended profusion of competing truth claims about the Bible's meaning and God's will that problematized the epistemological status of the truth claims and raised the specter of radical doctrinal skepticism and relativism via pluralism already in the 1520s. Whoever has gone astray in the faith may thereafter believe whatever he wants to. Everything is equally valid. 1526, not a defender of the Roman church decrying the dangers of Protestant individualism. That is Martin Luther railing against Huldrych Zwingli. Most Reformation scholars ordinarily think about the field somewhat differently. They distinguish sharply between the politically supported and therefore influential magisterial Reformation and the usually suppressed and therefore numerically, socially, and politically marginal radical reformation. To be sure, only two Protestant traditions exerted a widespread, long-lasting early modern influence, Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism, in which here, for the sake of simplicity, for those of you to whom this means something, I include the post-Henrician and non-Marian Church of England. Okay. Even though there are hundreds of divergent and rival anti-Roman interpretations of scripture in the Reformation era and beyond. But here is an instance in which an integrative cross-confessional approach to the period can shed new light by helping to correct historiographical oversights. Biblical interpretation and the exercise of power are two different things. They should not be conflated, but distinguished for the purposes of historical understanding. When we distinguish them, we see that Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism, again, including the Church of England and what we can start to call Anglicanism, starting with the Restoration of 1660, were actually the great exceptions of the Reformation era, just the opposite of how they've usually been and tend still to be regarded, precisely because from among all the various anti-Roman interpretations of God's word, only they secured the enduring support of political authorities in their respective cities, territories, and countries. Unlike all the other anti-Roman Christians, Lutherans and Reformed Protestants had political refuges in which they were not proscribed, persecuted, and punished. The Radical Reformation was important not because, aside from the German Peasants' War of the mid-1520s, the Anabaptist Kingdom of Munster in the mid-1530s, or the English Revolution in the 1640s and 50s, it had any widespread social, cultural, or political impact in the Reformation era. It's important because it shows what the Reformation as a whole and as such 
produced when it wasn't being overseen and controlled by confessional political authorities. The same open-ended heterogeneity of divergent views about the meaning of God's word is evident today in the radically different political context of liberal democratic states, which of course deliberately avoid confessional prescriptions. The significance of the foundational appeal to the Bible within the Reformation as a whole becomes clear only when we historically reintegrate the radical with the magisterial Reformation and distinguish between the rejection of the Roman church and the exercise of political power. That Lutheranism and Reformed Protestantism were politically supported and therefore socially influential is no reason to regard either as theologically or exegetically normative, as if justification by faith alone through grace alone were therefore true and somehow the clear cornerstones of Christian doctrine. Certainly early modern Mennonites and Familists and Socinians didn't agree. Scripture alone, unfettered and unconstrained and lacking political oversight, produced an open-ended range of rival truth claims about what Christianity was and implied. Scripture interpreted by hermeneutic authorities with the backing of political authorities produced confessional Protestant cities, territories, and states analogous to early modern Catholic confessional regimes. I turn now to the second main reason for the eventual disembedding of Christianity from the rest of life in the wake of the Reformation, one even more influential than the first, the on and off religio-political conflicts between the 1520s and the 1640s, especially those between magisterial Protestants and Catholics in different regions of Europe. Much to the chagrined surprise of Protestant leaders, the papal antichrist and its kingdom did not crumble as a prelude to the apocalypse. Just the opposite. Especially after the Council of Trent, Roman Catholicism regrouped in Europe and solidified its spread around the world, from New France in North America to the Philippines in Asia. And much to the stricken dismay of Catholic leaders, the Protestant Reformation demonstrated its staying power, quite unlike those groups of medieval dissenters, Albigensians, Valdensians, Lollards, Hussites, that Roman church leaders working with non-ecclesiastical authorities had managed at least to contain and control through suppression. Because what was at stake was so important, God's truth and the prospect of eternal life in the hereafter, as well as the right ordering and flourishing of human life in the present, faith commitments played a part in the motivations of many rulers and their involvement in the religio-political conflicts from the Koppel Wars of 1529 to 31 in the Swiss Confederation through the Thirty Years' War and the English Civil Wars in the 1640s. These conflicts were destructive, expensive, and inconclusive. No Reformation-era rulers who engaged in them achieved their main goals in any lasting manner. Nor could they eliminate to their satisfaction those dissenters who subverted their aim of creating Christian communities coextensive with rulers' respective political communities. Resolute confessionalizing efforts were welcomed by the willingly devout, but they fostered reservoirs of resentment precisely among foot-draggers and resistors whose conformity was sought. This would provide a crucial part of the background for the widespread liberationist narrative of modernity, which traces a trajectory from oppressive pre-modern religious restrictiveness to modern individual secular autonomy, a story first forged in different Enlightenment national contexts and no less evident today in various postmodern manifestations. By the mid-17th century, 
There were strong incentives to try to discover or fashion persuasive ideological substitutes for Christianity, ones capable of transcending deadlocked doctrinal controversies and the revival of Peronian skepticism to which the standoffs contributed. The most important and influential of these new substitutes, of course, was foundationalist philosophy, beginning with Descartes. But modern philosophy subsequently failed to provide consensual, substantive answers to life questions through reason alone, just as the Reformation had sought but failed to provide such answers through scripture alone. By the late 20th century, the result was considerable skeptical wreckage. Indeed, one might say that after a long detour led by modern philosophy, a detour of more than three centuries, a central thrust of much postmodernism represents a return of that early modern skepticism that modern philosophy sought to banish but failed to overcome, having instead replicated in a rationalist register the unintended pluralism of Protestantism. Yet the eventual means of coping with unintended rival truth claims about what to believe and how to live would be not religious or philosophical, but rather institutional. Indeed, by the early 17th century, some institutional arrangements were emerging that just looked like they might provide an alternative to confessionalization and the prospect of future rounds of religio-political conflict. In the 1580s already, urban leaders in that weird new neo-medieval polity, the Dutch Republic, began experimenting in, a, in the direction opposite to the confessionalizing ambitions characteristic of so many other rulers. They were keenly aware of the ongoing conflicts between Catholics and Huguenots in France and wary of militant Calvinism and Catholicism alike. Hence, they privileged Reformed Protestantism as the public church, their phrase, but they did not make it the state religion. No one was compelled to attend its services or to belong to its communities of faith. And in fact, throughout the United Provinces, Reformed Protestants long constituted a minority, sometimes a tiny minority, of the population as a whole. Employing a de facto distinction between public and private space, the Dutch were essentially, if at first only implicitly, defining something new, religion. Considered as a matter of individually preferred interior beliefs, worship, and practices of devotion, and therefore separable from the rest of life. The English ambassador to the United Provinces, William Temple, described the effects in 1673. The power of religion among them, where it is, lies in every man's heart. The appearance of it is but like a piece of humanity by which everyone falls most into the company or conversation of those whose customs and humors, whose talk and disposition they like best. And as in other places, tis in every man's choice with whom he will eat or lodge, with whom go to market or to court. So it seems to be here with whom he will pray or go to church or associate in the service or worship of God. Nor is any more notice taken of what everyone chooses in these cases than in the other. Here, Christianity, or to use Temple's more abstract term, religion, has been subjectivized, interiorized, and compartmentalized. With Temple and others in the late 17th century, we see early articulations of what, what, what would turn out to be the institutional means for domesticating a disrupted, divided Christendom, simultaneously paving the way for modern Western secularism. Society, the public life of power and politics, 
economic transactions and non-ecclesiastical institutions, and all other normal non-sectarian social interactions, had in principle, at least embryonically, found its way free of religion, which was at the same time becoming something separable from the rest of life. Such a society would doubtless differ from the forms of human life it was displacing because Christianity itself was being radically redefined as a restricted matter of individual preference in place of something that had been intended to inform shared public life. But as long as divided Christians continued to share so many other beliefs in common about morality, familial duty, participation in civic life, and so forth, the public effects of the de facto toleration being pioneered by the Dutch would at first remain relatively minor. Disembedding of this sort was a gradual long-term process, very different from, say, the violent de-Christianization of the French Revolution in the 1790s. Increased religious toleration, the Dutch discovered, was good for business. One of the crucial developments that facilitated Christianity's gradual disembedding, a development intertwined with the innovative political practices of the Dutch, was their emergence as a maritime commercial power, and indeed, as Jan de Vries and Ad van der Waude would have it, participants in the first modern economy. In critical ways, Dutch practices of acquisitiveness departed from traditional Christian views about the dangers of avarice and the pursuit of wealth. Views that Lutheran, Reformed Protestant, and radical Protestant leaders of the 16th century had expressed with copious reference to scripture. But understandably, and especially after the cataclysm of the Thirty Years' War, part of their own Eighty Years' War with the Spanish, the Dutch were not the only Christians who demonstrated that they would rather go shopping than sustain aggressive doctrinal controversy and possible further rounds of religio-political conflict. They and many other Christians in Northwestern Europe across confessional lines began participating in what de Vries has called the Industrious Revolution, the household-based combination of harder, longer work to support increasing desires for the things that money could buy in the pursuit of comfort and enjoyment across an unprecedentedly wide swath of the population beginning in the mid-17th century and later providing ballast for the Industrial Revolution. Thus did Catholics and Protestants both begin willingly to permit their self-colonization by consumption and capitalism in a sharp departure from traditional Christian views about acquisitiveness. This was not an entirely new development, of course, but part of a much longer trend. In previous centuries, its social base had been much smaller. Medieval popes and members of the Curia, as well as rulers and nobles, plus worldly-minded Renaissance merchants, princes, churchmen, and courtiers. But besides the expansion of the social base to embrace many more households, first in the Dutch Republic, what distinguished the 17th and 18th century was the deliberate redefinition of acquisitiveness as something good, something positive, whether it was viewed as part of God's providence among the 18th century New England Protestant ministers and merchants studied by Mark Valeri, essentially the distant ancestors of today's proponents of the prosperity gospel, or it was defended as ostensibly inherent in human nature by thinkers such as Mandeville, Montesquieu, and Hume. Increasingly, the desire for more and better stuff was regarded not as a sinful propensity to seek the fulfillment of one's own superfluous wants at the expense of meeting others' most basic needs, to be resisted through ascetic self-denial. It was instead viewed 
as an unavoidable and therefore acceptable aspect of universal human nature whose effects would be benign and beneficial. In this respect, modern capitalism and consumerism should, it seems to me, be seen less as an outgrowth of either Reformation-era Protestantism or Catholicism than as an alternative to and a rejection of both, the impetus for which was influenced considerably by the failures of Reformation-era rulers to realize their military and political objectives. What was adumbrated in the United Provinces of the Netherlands and channeled through Britain's Dutch apprenticeship was first and most influentially institutionalized in the United States in the late 18th century. By then, American men and women had been much more thoroughly enculturated in the Industrious Revolution, not only in port cities like Boston and Philadelphia, but as Anne Smart Martin has shown, even in the rural backcountry of Virginia. But widespread acquisitiveness was only part of the picture. An institutional, political solution was also important in order to address the issues raised by the colony's religious pluralism inherited from the Reformation. In the debates in December 1784 about whether the state of Virginia should continue to support publicly and financially the Anglican Church as it had throughout the colonial era, James Madison's notes reflected the persistent relevance of issues that had vexed Europeans since the 1520s and now impinged on Americans. This is Madison. In what light are the biblical books to be viewed, as dictated every letter by inspiration, or the essential parts only, or the matter in general, not the words? What sense the true one? For if some doctrines be essential to Christianity, those who reject these, whatever name they take, are no Christian society? Is it Trinitarianism, Arianism, Socinianism? Is it salvation by faith or works also, by free grace or free will, etc., etc., etc.? The solution, in retrospect, seems simple and obvious, namely, permit everyone to believe as they please, worship as they wish, in exchange for obedience to the state's laws. Essentially, a democratization of Luther's Here I Stand, but combined with a widespread agreement about the changed meaning and the much narrowed scope of religion, prompted by the disruptions of the Reformation era. What William Temple had observed about the Dutch in the 1670s was elevated by Madison into a maxim. It is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes to be acceptable to him. So long as they obeyed the state's laws, citizens could believe whatever they wanted, at least in principle, and they could worship or not as they wished. As Thomas Paine put it in 1794, my own mind is my own church. The principal founding documents of the United States are deliberately formal and empty with respect to answers to the life questions. Americans were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there was no mention of how one ought to live, how freedom should be exercised, or in what the pursuit of happiness consisted. That was, of course, the point. This was deliberately left to individual discretion, even though shared public life continued to depend in large measure and in practice on the substantive values and virtues that Americans absorbed through the most important institutions responsible for inculcating them, namely churches and families, whose members were, in John Butler's memorable phrase, awash in a sea of faith. A formal ethics of politically protected individual rights, not a substantive ethics of the good over which Christians had quarreled so consequentially in the Reformation era would provide the framework for public morality in the United States.
This despite the fact that public morality continued to depend for its substantive content on vigorous, mostly Protestant churches, the influence of which increased beginning with the evangelical revival of the 1790s. Federal disestablishment of churches could and did work as well as it did because of this symbiotic relationship. The effects of the symbiosis struck Tocqueville during his American visit in the early 1830s. There is an innumerable multitude of sects in the United States. They are all different in the worship they offer to the creator, but all agree concerning the duties of men to one another. That is, their members shared a sense of moral responsibilities and obligations that could and did inform public life, despite federal disestablishment and the institutional separation of church and state. Tocqueville continues, each sect worships God in its own fashion, but all preach the same morality in the name of God. Indeed, all the sects in the United States belong to the great unity of Christendom, and Christian morality is everywhere the same. That is, as a contingent sociological fact, the large majority of Americans happened still to share a moral outlook that informed public life at the time which meant that religion, as Tocqueville famously said, quote, should therefore be considered as the first of their political institutions. In effect, disestablishment and freedom of religion were contributing to the cohesion that early modern European confessional regimes had sought to achieve through free, frequently coercive established churches. But the subsequent history of the US has demonstrated the instability of this social reality and its political effects. The country's underlying political and legal framework was deliberately without prescriptive content about life questions, and it protected individual rights because of the enduring doctrinal disagreements and their correlative social divisiveness inherited from the Reformation era. Individuals had to be protected because individuals disagreed about what was true and how to live. To be sure, public social life, politics, and morality could continue to be influenced by religion under the terms of disestablishment and the political protection of individual religious freedom. But they would actually be so influenced only if individual citizens in fact exercised their freedom in ways that concretely shaped domains of life that were in principle officially insulated from religion. If citizens started collectively and habitually behaving differently, say through an intensification of the consumption practices that had marked American life since the colonial era, resulting in recent decades in what Zygmunt Bauman has analyzed as a distinctively consumerist rather than a merely industrial society, then the influence of religion on public life would presumably change accordingly. Bracketing changes as important as the advent of post-Darwinian Protestant fundamentalism after the Civil War, this is what I would suggest happened in the US, especially since the Second World War and most visibly since the 1960s. Religion has not gone away, nor have most Americans stopped self-identifying as Christians of one sort or another. But nothing besides consumerism has taken the place of any shared, substantive, politically and socially efficacious views about how people ought to live, how they should exercise their freedom, and how happiness ought to be pursued. What Tocqueville observed in the 1830s is emphatically no longer the case. Americans do not agree, even about their basic duties to one another, nor do they all preach the same morality. Indeed, since last year's election, it now seems we don't even share a common epistemology. 
In contrast to Western European countries, religion remains omnipresent in the US, but it no longer informs American society at large in any coherent way because religious believers as a whole are divided on every socially and morally significant issue in ways that tend to reflect the divisions of American political life in general. In the wake of the dissolution and the dismantling of the Protestant moral establishment, recently analyzed by David Sahat, individuals are free to define and determine the good for themselves and to live as they please within the state's laws. This is the real key to secularization, it seems to me. Facilitated in the long term, by the politically protected individual freedom of religion that itself sought to address the unintended Christian pluralism inherited from the Reformation era. So long as you are politically quiescent, you can believe whatever you want, live however you please, change what you believe and how you live however you wish for whatever reason or no reason without regard for anyone else. It's all up to you. Individual choice per se is the summum bonum. The empirical result is our contemporary American pluralism, its attendant political frictions and factions, the growing incivility of which in public life in recent decades has now reached a new and disturbing level over the past year or so. One corollary, it seems to me, in the absence of shared assumptions about values, priorities, morality, and meaning is the persistence of our bumper sticker political discourse in what Tony Grafton already several years ago called our poisoned public sphere. It risks risable understatement to describe it today as a discourse short on rigor and filled with rancor. On the other hand, why should we care about the lives and problems of people we don't know? Those outsourced laborers in China or Mexico who make the stuff we buy, or the rural and urban poor in our own country, when we can simply go online, pull out the credit card, and enjoy some retail therapy. Ignoring others is perfectly constitutional. It's how we can choose to live in exercising our liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Even though American per capita income increased eightfold in real terms during the 20th century, we now live in a society without an acquisitive ceiling in which there is literally no such thing as too much, provided one has the financial means to do as one pleases. This is the latter-day secularized outcome of early modern Christians' self-colonization by capitalism and consumption. It functions now within our political and legal system to hold together, despite serious signs of stresses and strains, the open-ended pluralism that is the unintended latter-day ideological outcome of the Reformation. To be sure, modern liberalism found a way to address the serious problems of coexistence among contentious Christians and the failure of antagonistic early modern confessional rulers to achieve their objectives but the rights it protects have facilitated more than the solution to a political problem. Consider the relationship between consumerism as an expression of the exercise of individual rights and the environmental impact of the industrial manufacturing that produces all that stuff, including the world's petroleum-powered vehicles. Of course, we can always hope that the findings pertaining to climate change from so many teams of scientists in so many different disciplines from around the world have nothing to do with human activity and that we are simply experiencing another, albeit unprecedentedly rapid, upswing in the Earth's natural warming and cooling cycles. But if, as seems much more likely, what we are really seeing is the cumulative effect of acquisitive human desires on the natural world itself, it would turn out to be the ultimate subversion 
of some of the most basic dominant assumptions of Western modernity, that the acquisitiveness sanctioned for centuries as rational self-interest and the high road to human happiness is actually endangering the biosphere that makes all human and other life possible. Small wonder then that some defenders of individual rights, economic deregulation, and free enterprise are so keen to dismiss concerns about global warming as politically motivated hot air. By way of conclusion, finally, I hope I've offered at least some sense. This is Brief Compass. That's a 500-page book with 1,100 footnotes. This was a short precy. But some sense of how the persistent, unintended doctrinal disagreements of the Reformation era and the concrete disruptions with which they were intertwined set in motion changes that over the long term have precipitated Western society's secularization, understood as the gradual disembedding of a restrictively redefined religion from the rest of life. I also hope I've explained why, if we want to understand the world we're living in today and where it came from, we need both a wider gauge and a longer chronological horizon than many historians or other scholars imagine. Thank you. It seems to me that we need, is that on? Is that what you want? That the power centers of the world are shifting toward Asia and away from the West. How does one tie the history that looks backward that brings us to the present toward an estimable future? Yeah, I mean, there's, so there's two big, I think, big questions embedded there. One is how we look toward the future. The other is what about other parts of the world, particularly Asia? Um, on the latter, I always get asked this question in some form. Every time I've given a talk about this project, it, you know, the diagnosis, I get what you're saying, that makes sense, I can see how it helps explain a lot. So now what? What do we do next? You've laid out these, these difficult problems, these conundrums, so what's the plan, Professor Gregory? To which I say, I am a historian, I study the past, up to the present, I do not make policy, and even less do I prophesy about the future. I will say though, um, I think, um, this is not, it's not good news. Um, major historical trends and extremely uh, well-established, strong institutions and trends like modern industrial capitalism, like sovereign nation states. These are not things that um, tend to change historically unless there are enormous um, uh, upheavals of one kind or another. So it seems to me unlikely that um, either of those things is going to somehow gradually be transformed. Part of that is, we can talk about that if you want to, if that seems unlikely to me. The other part, I also point on just because I really, um, I know something about the relationship between uh, Western Europe, oh, I'm supposed to be here too, I'm sorry. Could, can, is that all he hearable? I'm so sorry, I'm sorry about that. I'm so used to walking around. I'll stand out rigid here at the mic. Um, I know something about the relationship between Western Europe um, and the rest of the world in the, say, the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, but not much about it after that, except what I hope an educated person ought to know. Certainly, to um, talk about the story I'm telling here in uh, a truly, not just widespread Western context, but a global context, one would have to do a lot more work. And I, I honestly, I mean, I just freely confess, I don't have the expertise to do it, except Clearly, um, the point you make, absolutely well taken, 
And I'm more than happy if anybody here happens to have uh, comments or suggestions that they would like to make. About, I'm not going to write that book, but uh, there are people who can, who can do that. Um, but probably they um, are less interested in, say, late medieval metaphysics and its relationship to soteriology or whatever the case may be. So thanks. Uh, would you say that uh, Pope Francis and his global vision and uh, rising discussions about the common good are so much whistling in the dark? I sure hope not. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was remarkable to me. Um, I was actually, I, just by coincidence, happened to be in Rome um, the week that Laudato Si uh, was, was released, and it was remarkable. There, not just the reaction to it in Rome, but the reaction to it around the world. Um, it struck me that um, there were a lot of people who, I don't know if I can put it quite this way, were waiting for somebody to say something like that. I'm a great fan of Pope Francis. Um, I, the fact that he has garnered um, so many positive you know, evaluations and, and commendations from people who aren't Catholic, who aren't even Christian, who aren't even religious believers, but that he's a, a recognized, serious, obviously um, committed moral authority who is taking leadership on the question um, about international cooperation and about um, concern for the environment and its relationship to um, unregulated capitalism, consumption, and so forth. I think that's a great sign. I mean, you know, if, if, even if it's whistling in the dark, otherwise it's pure silence. And that's, we, we can't have that. So let's hope the whistling is joined by other instruments, voices, and a mighty chorus of, uh, uh, of inspiration and transformation takes place. Because it does, it does seem to me that, you know, I, I mean, I really, people who know me and have known me for a while know, I mean, I have, a, a friend of mine said, you have a sunny disposition. Nobody would know that from reading Unintended Reformation. I mean, I hated this book in a certain way. When I was really, when this book, when I was kind of, yeah, I see it, I see this connection, so if it's coming, to, I didn't want to, write it. I mean, it, it seemed to me appalling and disturbing. Um, because if, if I'm right, even if I'm three quarters right, the, it's not obvious at all what we do in obvious ways. Because the problems are intertwined such that this is not the kind of problem that's going to be, oh, if the elections turn around in the next term, we're going to be, you know, things. That will solve certain kinds of problems. And don't get me wrong, I really do hope that there's a certain outcome in, in the midterm elections. But that's not the kind of solution that we need or the, the set of entangled um, ways forward that it would seem we could get us out of the, the kinds of problems that we're facing. I mean, it's, it's in a certain sense, it's a, it's a kind of painfully tragic um, long-term story about unintended consequences of really democratic liberalism that was instituted with the highest of ideals and I think properly. It's hard to see what the other solutions would have been in the, in the late 18th century or the early 19th. Jim Kloppenberg sitting over here probably very politely holding his, his breath. He's going to let me have it in a minute about all the things that I got wrong about this. But it does seem to me that, um, that we're seeing unprecedented kinds of strains put on basic liberal institutions and assumptions in the United States in part because of liberalism itself. It has functioned as well as it has, I think, largely because of a more or less coherent Anglophone Protestant culture. 
to, onto which other immigrant cultures, most importantly Catholicism and Judaism, were grafted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Liberalism needed, if, it, if not that, it needs something. It needs content. It needs substance. And when those things fall away, add to that the kinds of socioeconomic pressures, disappointments, and, and I would say recklessness on the part of certain elites over the last 40 years, you have a, you've gone a long way toward explaining, it seems to be, the conundrum and the, the problem that we find ourselves in right now. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, I mean, Amen. I'm just riffing as a Reformation historian, so perhaps all that's, all that's wrong, I don't know. Let me, let me offer a, a bit of a softball question here. Oh good, I like those. The last, the last few words, you seem to be describing the American University. In the and, last chapter? No, the last few oh, things you just said. Yeah. Liberalism and its unintended consequences or its crisis. You seem to be describing the university or the American University and, and one could say this university but many other universities as well. Do, do, you, do you feel that yourself that the university is not playing or is, is playing a role more in, in line with these trends or resisting these trends or just, just by the, on a, a sidelines player uh, in general? Gosh, that's a, it's a really, that's a very good question. The, the specificity of which I've not really thought about before. Um, I mean, it, in, it seems to me that the most, um, probably the most um, widespread socioeconomically important influence of American universities today is less ideological along these lines than it is um, the STEM disciplines and what they contribute to technological innovation, which has its connections to capitalism and, and consumerism and so forth. I do think that you know, there, these, these trends are, I mean, you can find people in universities, obviously, that are contributing in these kinds of ways. But um, universities are also the source of people who might, who knows, make actual critiques about some of these trends and so forth. So on, on the point about liberalism per se, I, I would say it, it seems to me more of a mixed bag. I, I think that the dominant influence of, um, uh, of universities, uh, research universities in the United States and Western Europe now is, is because of their contributions to technology, engineering, and the, and the natural sciences, and the extent to which um, well, I mean, Harvard is, is, a, is a, you know, a unique place, a distinctive place, um, and there are senses in which here I think you're probably insulated about the extent to which the STEM disciplines call the shots, but at all big state universities that is not the case. And so that seems to me the bigger, the bigger contributing uh, factor. The other thing I would say too, and I, I argue this in the book, um, I think it's, um, I think that if, if uh, the contemporary academy was actually consistent with its own commitment to academic freedom, then it should permit a much wider range of substantive questions about religion and religious truth claims to be aired um, in whatever intellectually responsible ways um, those who want to air them can do so within other disciplines. Part of the problem is that it's far too much taken for granted that religion is this object to be studied, but the idea that some religious claims might actually be true is a question that I think it's very difficult to raise, um, at least in my experience, in, in 14 years as a, as a graduate student at Princeton, uh, two years here at Harvard, and then uh, the seven years that I taught at Stanford. And it was, to be honest, for opportunities for greater academic freedom along these lines 
that I gave up a tenure job at Stanford and went to Notre Dame. So there's something you haven't heard in a Harvard talk in a while. <laughs> All right, Jim's going to, he's got it. <laughs> I'm just, I just know you could, Jim. <laughs> I've, I've committed a, a, a big book of my own, those of you who don't know, on the subject of democracy. And David, Brad and I have had a chance to, to talk about this, as I have with David as well. Um, there are many parts of your argument that I not only agree with, but would um, emphatically uh, re assent to. Um, the question about Pope Francis, though, raises a question that I, I'd like to hear you address, because I don't think we have discussed this. Isn't it true that, just as Tocqueville recognized, the resources in the original texts of Christianity provide exactly what you're looking for in the way of a substantive ethic? And inasmuch as it also remains true that most Americans profess to be part of either a Christian or a, a Judaic tradition, uh, or even one of the Abrahamic traditions, yeah. those injunctions to live a certain kind of life remain live in much of our culture, although the pressure pushing the other direction, as you pointed out, is very powerful. The thrust of my book on democracy is that the Reformation is crucial in part because it makes clear the appeal of what I call an ethic of reciprocity. Mm -hmm. And what Madison is trying to get yeah. at, I think, is if we admit that no one of us can make a knockdown argument for our particular uh, religious uh, convictions, then admitting the possibility that one is wrong and admitting the possibility that the other yeah. is right opens the door to a kind of democratic culture that was not possible prior to the Reformation because there was a single truth yeah. to which everyone had to uh, press allegiance. So even though I think there's much about the trajectory that you described that I would agree with, and I think the consequences are as you describe them, do we not have, not at our fingertips, but somewhere, <laughs> the, resources, the resources necessary, both intellectual and cultural, to revivify the kind of culture that Tocqueville saw when he came to the United States that under writes a, a vibrant civic culture and that could give us a democracy that doesn't ignore people unlike ourselves, but instead takes very seriously yeah. uh, not only their desires, but their needs. I, I that, yes, I, the, 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 my, my, my first initial short answer is yes. Um, and and, and a, a bit of an elaboration on that, at least, um, you know, just thinking about it on the spur of the moment is, in principle, I think that's right. I mean, I think th there's, it's certainly still there. These issues are, they're not forgotten. Millions of people in one way or another, right, would, would listen to what you're saying and to certain aspects of, of what I was saying in my response about Pope Francis and, and you know, nod and say, yes, you know, th that's there. I recognize that. There's something we can build on there. We can talk about that. Um, I, th I suppose, um, you know, in, in certain ways, the, the thing that it seems to me is one of the biggest obstacles to the... Um, I mean, aside from the kind of can you convince people to sort of, okay, let's actually, you know, discuss this in dialogue and come up with and, and then implement, whether it's institutionalized, whether it's, you know, a matter of encouragement, whatever kind of social or political or institutional form that might take. In addition to that, it seems to me, um, the, the relationship in the United States, perhaps the United States above all, but also certain other um, countries, between these kinds of... Um, 
intellectual, moral, religious resources on the one hand, and the political protection for buy up to the limit of your credit amount consumption on the other, and the extent to which um, you know, the pursuit of affluence and, and individual human beings you know, pursuing more and better things for themselves to the exclusion of spending that time caring about you know, others who are less well off. I mean, there would be no way, I suppose, sociologically to, to gather the, the data, but I'll hazard a hypothesis that if one, if one could do a study and determine with accuracy in the United States how many people who could afford a second home or could have taken the money that would have gone into a second home have instead given that money to the poorest local members of their community have in fact done the latter. Maybe I'm just a bleak Augustinian, I don't know, but my guess is the percentage is very low. And that's, that's what concerns me. I think that, I think, I think consumeristic acquisitiveness is so deeply embedded in individualism, in political, politically protected rights, and in habituated assumptions, and in online buying, and in incessant marketing, and of course, buy another suit. You don't need it, but you know, go ahead. You know, a suit's a few hundred dollars if it's a nice suit. Maybe it's even more than that. That could do an awful lot for somebody, right, who doesn't have money to pay the rent. I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but you get the gist, the thrust of what I'm saying. I know it's just, I, sorry. Continue. Yeah, okay, good. Hi. Um, I hope I'm not speaking out of context because I just caught, like, the tail end. But from what <laughs> I understand, uh, what we're talking about, um, I wanted to first say that I, I, uh, I'm a Messianic, which, which uh, I worship in a place with both Jews and Gentiles in the same place. And I heard a gentleman speak about getting back to orthodoxy and, uh, you know, the Christianity's origins uh, maybe might help um, express the correct ideology we should be living and how that affects politics and, and how we live. Um, what do you say of, because my rabbi has talked to me about uh, Martin Luther's later works being anti-Semitic, and maybe some of the writings of the church fathers had gotten away from that orthodoxy in the way that, in, in, in the way of um, taking care of people and being so spiritually high-minded um, that we forget to take care of the lesser, and the lesser people and the poor and those that are different than us. Um, if Christianity and Judaism become more close, closely related, I believe that could be a, a very powerful example instead of having that wide divide. Um, and the last thing I want to say, uh, I want to ask you, is um, what do you believe that eschatology in, in the biblical reference has to do with um, framing those, those, those ideologies and how that could change things? Because approaching this from a purely external point um, is not always going to change things because people's hearts and minds are still going to be self-centered anyway. You can't impose that. So our time is up. No, I'm just, uh, <laughs> um, real quickly, there's a, there's a lot in what you said. Um, the, the latter point, I mean, I just said a minute ago, right? We need the academy to open up more substantively to theological questions. Here, somebody asked me a question about eschatology. Now, now watch what I'm going to do. The problem is people have such different views about what eschatology is, which is why theology was excluded in the first place, right? I mean. I think that that kind, that, kind of a, um, that kind of a question, the question about 
Jewish or Islamic or Christian or other religious traditions anticipations of the future and eventual end times in relationship to a creator God is best fruitfully pursued and can be pursued in, in academic settings when you're talking about specific eschatological visions. And you can compare them and, and talk about them, debate, debate them, and discuss them. It's, it's, I don't think we have the kind of public space, and by that I mean also um, a guest professor standing up at, a, at another university to say, here's what I think about eschatology, because inevitably, Gregory, gosh, thinks he's a theologian. There he goes, you know, for his eschatological. It, it's just not fruitful. That's the way, see, I weaseled out of the last question you asked. Okay. The other, about, do I think Martin Luther's late writings were anti-Semitic? Yeah. Have you ever read, um, yeah, against, against the Jews in their lives? Yeah. Well, then you know the answer to that, right? I mean, that is, a, um, that is a, an extraordinarily vitriolic work. And I think not um, coincidentally, right around the same time, um, uh, Luther writes his most scathing and longest um, treatise against the papacy. I mean, uh, against the Pope of Rome. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, Luther scholarship is a, is a giant quagmire, and, you know, I'm not going to go into all the, the kind of things, whether you're talking about the difference between the old Luther and the young Luther and so forth. But in this particular case, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, his treatise from 1523, it's a very different, very different, much more optimistic, much more um, accepting, I mean, he's, he's arguing that Jesus Christ was Jewish, but, but this is the young Luther in the early Reformation hoping for, anticipating that, of course, as part of this extraordinarily uh, unanticipated renewal and rediscovery of the gospel, God is going to bring right, the, the Jews into Christianity before the eschatology. I knew I could tie it. I knew I could tie it in. By, by 1543-44, he's an old man. He's been through a lot, he's disappointed bitterly, he can't believe that the world's still around, given his apocalyptic expectations, and also his anger and disappointment that in fact nothing like that has happened. And in fact, there actually have been rabbis in Central Europe with the temerity to argue back against him and say, you know, I, I really don't think that what you're doing is a good thing, so. Okay, yeah, but we, and we could do that, but then, then you would have to be talking to somebody who actually knows a lot more about okay. contemporary Judaism and Jude Judaic eschatol Jewish eschatology than I know. Absolutely. All right. Uh, reluctantly, I have to bring this uh, conversation to an end. Uh, uh, as I do so, uh, I'd like to thank uh, three people. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank our dean for underwriting and supporting uh, this event. And, a variety of ways. Um, secondly, I mentioned at the beginning that two professors had the idea uh, for this lecture, but we then quickly offloaded it and delegated it to Karin, who did all of the heavy lifting. So Karin, thank you very much for that. And finally, Brad, thank you so very much for a thought-provoking, very, very stimulating uh, presentation and question and answer session. And join me in thanking Brad. Thank mm -hmm. you.